The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage the great neuroplastic brain for recovery. In this episode of Noggins and Neurons, Pete and I are talking about TPA. Before we get into this topic, though, I want to recap our previous two episodes where we talked about what doesn't work. So in What Doesn't Work Part 1, we talked about the definition of conventional therapy, how an eclectic intervention approach appears to be the best way to promote recovery, and challenges around reading the research and making decisions about whether or not certain interventions or certain aspects of interventions actually work. Then we talked about interventions that don't work and are harmful or dangerous, those that don't work and don't seem to be harmful, and the ones that work but better options might be available. We talked about stem cells, how they work, and researcher reports that stretch the truth about outcomes and more. And then we talked about how the research shows there are some effective aspects of NDT, but in general, it doesn't stand up well compared to other approaches. Then, in episode two of What Doesn't Work, we discovered that there's mixed evidence around bilateral training. We reviewed how clinical reasoning works and why it's important in the rehab process. Then we learned that the literature is mixed about music therapy, telerehabilitation, and arm and shoulder robotics for arm recovery, and how acupuncture, Botox, exoskeleton systems, whole body vibration and stimulants may not be effective for lower extremity recovery. We learned about some shady practices that NeuroAid engages in and that it may not improve spasticity. We also found research that supports that recovery does not occur from proximal to distal and that indeed that is a myth. We also learned again about the importance of bringing meaning into recovery and we talked about 
hyperbaric oxygen therapy that it isn't effective for stroke recovery. And you still hear in doctors' voices this reluctance to use TPA because they're afraid people are going to bleed out. There's so much that doesn't make sense to me around those types of decisions and the way that our society is right now with suing people because if you don't have TPA, it's not going to end well. So if you're already in a situation where it's not going to end well, what is the risk? And I do think that some of it has to do with the way that we view the life cycle and our beliefs around living and dying. Really, how so, Deb? This is going to get deep quick, I can tell. Here we go. (laughs) What do you got? Well, we don't get out of here alive. I mean, we do die. And, you know, I have seen a lot working in the critical care units. I have seen people come in with those most forms, medical medical orders for for life-sustaining treatment. Most. Most. So those are pretty specific. And you can put exactly what you want on there. And I have seen family members and doctors walk all over those forms and keep people alive who don't want to be kept alive. And it's extending, oftentimes it's it's extending an unhealthy situation to begin with. And people, they don't want to live that way because it's not living. And, you know, just sometimes it's really hard to let people go. It's hard to watch people suffer. It's hard on caregivers. And I I don't, there's so much, um, what's the right way to say this? People don't know. If you've never been around people who are very debilitated and who need a lot of care to total care, then it's hard to imagine the challenge on a person, on a caregiver for that until you start doing it. And everything changes that way. So, you know, because we don't know, we don't know how things are going to turn out. But if a person is having a stroke and they're already presenting poorly and TPA might make it better, then to me, it makes sense. Give the TPA. It's weird. When you say you want to record, it tells me, but when I say I want to record, it doesn't say anything. So I'm recording you. Just Okay. That's great. I'm recording you too. <laughs> it's like the CIA up in here. This is scary. All right, are you ready? I'm ready. All right, hey, Deb Bennett. Stella, how are you doing? I'm great, Pete. How are you? I'm good, I think. So, Uh-oh. Yeah, no, I'm good. No, okay. Everything's going really well. I, I'm just never sure. <laughs> we'll see how this goes, this new chapter. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, in this episode, we're going to talk about TPA. TPA, what's that? TPA is tissue plasminogen activator. Wow, that's a lot of The clot buster. Yeah, it is. is. Pretty much you can just refer to it as the clot buster. Clot buster. Okay. Yeah. All right. Did you want to talk about TPA? Yeah, I think that'd be a good thing to talk about. Okay, I do too. You know, when it's administered and it's administered quickly enough and it's administered safely, it can be the difference between a life that involves a lot of disability versus a life that involves literally no disability. It's night and day, it's dramatic, and so I think it's an important thing to talk about, get people up to speed with 
where the research is and how much time they have. And, you know, you can have a stroke and not get TPA or get TPA. Um, a fair amount of people that have had a stroke have another stroke and they can get TPA again. So it's important to know that, that you've got to get to the hospital as quickly as possible. But we're going to discuss all that. Yeah, we are. Where do you want to start with this? I was thinking we would start with explaining what it is. Okay, or, or we could start with a story. Oh, Pete, do you have a story? I do have a story and it's a great story and it's about TPA. And um, do, do you have like three minutes? I'm going to try to get this down to three minutes. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Okay, so um, my son is a very high level uh, athlete. He is an all state, all Great Lakes region soccer player. But, you know, in high school, you're sort of like on the football team and that's the people you hang with, or you're on the soccer team, or you're on the baseball team, and they all have their little cliques. Well, my son and a couple of the other kids on the soccer team have been adopted by the football team. So they go to a lot of the same parties and stuff. And I told him, look, you can be on the soccer team, but when you party, party with the football players, cause they have the best parties. And I think he took it to heart. So made a lot of friends with him and he's kind of big for a soccer player. So he fits right in anyway. So we go to a lot of these football parties and about a year or so he was a senior. So a year or so ago, we went to this party and one of his best friends, who's like this ginormous kid, his father had a stroke Ooh. and I knew he had a stroke. I'd sent him, well, sent him good vibes and offered my assistance if he needed it, which he didn't. And here's why. So I went to this party and I'm drinking as usual. <laughs> it was my daughter's 21st birthday last night and we went out drinking, which I was very happy about because she invited us to her 21st. Who does that? You know, she invited us, the parents and we drank and it was the first time in a long time. Anyway, so I was drinking at this party. I'm talking to this guy. You had a stroke. And you don't seem like you had a stroke. He said, well, it's weird. I was driving to work and uh, I don't remember driving to work, but apparently they found me in the parking lot slumped over my steering wheel and they caught, got the door open. They called 911. They started doing CPR and my poor wife had to go through this thing where she was, she had power of attorney or whatever. And they had to decide whether or not I got TPA, tissue plasminogen activator, the clot busting drug. And she had to go through this thing. You know, there's a five or 6% chance that you'll bleed out in it because it does. Well, we'll discuss the, the um, physiology of this, but it, it can thin the blood, let's say. And so there was some risk there. My wife had to make the decision. She made the decision. And boy, you know, by that night, I felt fine. I was out of it. And then I felt fine. They had to keep me overnight. But by the next day, they were like, I think you need to go. He was fine. And then they sent him to a couple of days of rehab, but he really, they didn't know what to do with him because he was fine. And so they sent him home. And so that's a great example of somebody just as a tangent. He went from hyperacute through acute right to chronic, and he did it all in about a day and a half. So that's why those those four phases sometimes come at you at different epochs, different times, but that's the power of TPA. He could have gone and he was in his late thirties, I guess, at the time he could have spent years with these terrible residuals from the stroke. And instead his wife helped pull the trigger on TPA and now he's fine. He's back at work, looks normal. It's a good looking guy, kind of pisses me off, but other than that, he's a great guy. So uh, yeah, that's the power of TPA. And that's what we want to talk about today. Yeah. So it sounds like it was fortunate that his wife knew when he left for work, probably because he probably leaves around the same time every day and someone found him in the parking lot so they could estimate the time from onset of symptoms because there is that window of time where TPA can be administered. And I've heard 
and worked with many people where they didn't know exactly when the symptoms began. And so they weren't able to give the person TPA. So I hope we can talk about that a little bit today. And I hope that you uh, understand like more about the back end of it than I do, because I'm curious. Yeah. So typically they talk about a three hour window. Do you agree that that's the window, generally speaking? Yeah. Like three to sometimes they'll extend it a little bit, but that's the stuff. Those are the questions that I have. Like what, when will they extend it? What are the reasons for extending it? That thinking. Do you know about that? Yeah. So um, I know that they went, they started out at three hours and then they went to four and a half hours. Then they were like, no, maybe six hours. And now it seems like we're back at three hours. And as you know, a lot has to be done within those three hours. So yes. And that is one of the reasons why it's important to get to the hospital if you might be experiencing stroke symptoms. And I know it's confusing for a lot of people and a lot of people think, oh, you know, if the symptoms are mild, that it's nothing and they'll feel better later. And yeah, it's it's hard to make that decision to go sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And and sometimes people just feel sort of sick to their stomach. There's all kinds of symptoms that mm-hmm. can indicate a stroke and they fall asleep. Yeah. And now they've wasted the three hour window sleeping and they wake up and they have to go to the bathroom and they fall. Yeah. And that's the first indication. Then the, the wife wakes up and they call 911 and then they start the process. By then it's too late. Yeah. So maybe that's a good place to start. What are the symptoms of stroke? Because again, it, you can have it the first time that you have a stroke. You can have it if you have a subsequent stroke, you can have TPA again. Um, so let's just go over that if that's okay. I think that's a very good idea. Now, university, I got to give credit for my previous employer, University of Cincinnati, uh, Rosie Miller, an RN there, many years ago developed the FAST test. And I'm sure you know this face, arm, speech, and time. I always get it confused because it's like, whoa, FAST test. Okay, what does it stand for? F, what does that stand for? Uh, FAST? No, it's face. So you ask them to smile and only one side comes up. Arm, you look for arm drift. You have them hold both arms out in front of them. And if one can't make it, to where the other arm is, you know that that's probably a pretty good indication of hemiparesis, developing hemiparesis. Um, S is speech, and they have to say something with the word Cincinnati in there. It's like a law. Oh, it is. No, it's not. It's good that I know this now. Yeah. I mean, there's some great videos online of people that have had a stroke or a TIA. Often it's a TIA, a temporary stroke, and but they're announcers on TV. And in the middle of the announcement, they start thinking, when this God, yeah, just gibberish comes out. And that's usually an indication that something's gone terribly wrong. And the last one is time that you have to get in within the three hours. So face, arm, speech, and time. But the last T could be TPA. It could. Good. Time, TPA. Now, one of the things I'm struggling with, I'm writing this fourth edition of my book, and you know, they now extended it. There's so many other symptoms for stroke. So now they're talking about BFAST and the B stands for balance. So are they having balance problems? And then the E, are they having a sort of hemianopsia thing where you have them follow your finger and then they just can't follow the finger on the more affected side? But there's other things. I mean, sometimes people get very nauseous. Um, Can you think of any other symptoms that I might add to my... Sometimes people have just a little numbness or tingling in an arm or leg or the face. And, you know, that can happen if you've just been positioned weird for a while. So I think that's one of the symptoms that is 
easy for people to write off or dismiss. What about um, if they're they're just kind of confused? Confusion. Would that be something that could be concerning? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Confusion, blurred vision is another big one. Not just a, a scanning problem or you know that whole thing where you don't realize you have a, a side of your body, but just blurred vision. And sometimes that vision blurriness comes and goes. Um, so again, that can be another symptom that people may tend to dismiss. Yeah, it comes, it goes. The stroke is evolving. Mm-hmm. Maybe the clot, you know, kind of dislodges and relodges in a smaller artery later on. You know, sometimes when people have hemorrhagic strokes, they have really bad headaches. That's right. That's a good one. Headache. And the way they describe headache in in a stroke is it's absolutely crushing. Like I know you get headaches sometimes and I get headaches. For a long time, I got really bad headaches. And those tend to build. You, you feel it and then you feel it more and then you soon you're throwing up. But these people, it's like they got hit in the head with a hammer. Yeah. They like always the, say it's the worst headache of their life. Absolutely crushing headache. Yeah. So that's a symptom. I mean, something went, went uh, on. And it, as you point out, it's usually an indication of a hemorrhagic stroke where there's bleeding into the brain. It puts pressure on nerve endings, usually at the the juncture between the skull and the brain. And then they have this blinding headache. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd forgotten about the hemorrhagic symptoms as well. Because when you talk about TPA and you're, you're often thinking, well, we got to get them in because of TPA, but time is brain for anybody that's having any kind of stroke and any kind of acquired brain injury. Yes. And when when somebody arrives at the emergency room with stroke-like symptoms, there's an entire triage process that the team has to go through. And they want to make sure that they can scan the brain quickly so they can tell, A, is it a stroke? And B, is it uh, ischemic or hemorrhagic? Because they don't give TPA to people who are hemorrhaging. That's right. It can make them hemorrhage even worse. Yeah. I did have some other symptoms written down. And thank you for um, reminding me about the sudden severe headache. Um, But there's some other ones. We talked about this a little bit. Loss of coordination, unsteady gait, dizziness, sudden onset of nausea and vomiting. Mm -hmm. Alertness starts to decrease, feeling really, really tired. And then you mentioned numbness or tingling Mm -hmm. on one side of the body. So sometimes a person can be having a stroke and present as if they're inebriated. And you hear stories in the news about a person having a stroke while they're driving, and then there's a police chase or something, and it doesn't always end well. But now that um, law enforcement officials are being educated on stroke symptoms, they're able to get help for that person more quickly. You have some law enforcement folks in your family, don't you? I do. You do. You know, I was named after my grandfather, Peter Massa, who was a motorcycle cop in South Philadelphia. And he was a guy that was just so scary. Every time we went to visit him, I was just scared of the guy. Mm. But I'm sure you're you're um, the people that are, are related to you are very uh, not scary. They are not scary. They're not scary? No. That's good. We need more not scary police officers. I think that's probably pretty important. Now, I don't know how they are on the job. That's right. <laughs> you should put but, a mask on, get pulled over on purpose, and then see how they are. Mm-hmm. And then pull off the mask. It's mom. Darn it. Leave <laughs> me alone. Go to your room. Go to your room. They would probably say, okay, thank you. Yes. I'd like to go to my room sometimes. (laughs) So I would like to talk about the physiology of TPA, and it's going to be really boring. 
So maybe you should have your finger over the little thing on the podcast that makes you go forward like a minute. Just keep clicking it till you hear me done. So Pete, I think people who work with stroke survivors are going to find this fascinating. Oh, well, you haven't heard it yet, Deb. It's boring. (laughs) But Um, I've done my own research. I think it's pretty cool. Oh, do you want to talk about the physiology? No, go right ahead. Okay. Now, as you probably know, there's this stuff called fibrin. It's found in the blood plasma. The blood plasma is this yellowish liquid that holds the red blood cells and the platelets and the white blood cells that are important for immune response and fibrin. And this fibrin basically goes around and tries to find breaks in the endothelium of the blood vessel wall. So these blood vessels, sometimes they break. They're under a lot of pressure, like literally blood pressure. And sometimes they break. If people smoke, they're even more broken. Smoke goes in there and chips away. We've talked on this podcast before about how NASADs do the same kind of thing. That's why they're dangerous to take a lot of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like Aleve or even Tylenol, even aspirin uh, wears out the endothelium. And so this fibrin floats around and tries to find these breaks in the endothelial wall of the blood vessel. And when it does, it sets up this fibrin mesh. And that fibrin mesh supports the blood vessel wall while the blood vessel is healing. Okay. The blood vessel heals eventually, but now the vessel's got to get rid of that clot, that buildup on the blood vessel wall. So there's this other chemical that floats around. It's called plasminogen. And plasminogen activates something called plasmin. There's this whole cascade and plasmin then cleaves the fibrin and breaks down the clot and you get normal blood flow. And that probably happens in all of us all the time. We don't know about it. We don't think about it. So what TPA does or RTPA, because we have TPA floating around and that's one of the things that makes plasminogen turn into plasmin and cleave these clots but we have developed a fake TPA, RTPA, but TPA forces the conversion of plasminogen to plasmin so that the clot is destroyed. And that's the way it typically happens. And that's without us thinking about it or any drug being administered or having a stroke or anything else. Happens all the time. Mm -hmm. Pete, you know what I learned in my research? That plasminogen is mainly produced in the liver. Thank you, liver. We appreciate (laughs) you taking care of things. Isn't it amazing how the body... Like, you know, so many crazy things go on and there's so much that it does to create homeostasis, to balance everything out. This is just one of a million things it does. Yeah. And we don't even think about it. We just go through our day. We just worry about how things are going on the podcast. That's all we care about. Just take care of everything. Yeah. When's when's another episode going to be released? What's taking them so long? And our ice cream we're going to have tonight. Come on, body. Control every one of the trillions of cells so we can just have fun. That's what we're here for. Exactly. Okay. So what are some of the steps um, that you found that need to be done from that sort of door to needle time? What are the, t- are there tests or, you know, who's in the hospital? Talking? What's going on there? Well, I know that they usually will send somebody for a CT scan to determine all they can about the brain in that moment. Sometimes they have MRIs. Now, I don't know the back end of that because I don't work in that department. Do you know about that? That's more radiology, but CT scan will determine, that's done quickly because they want to determine, hey, is this a hemorrhagic stroke? That is a bleed stroke or a block stroke, an ischemic stroke. Now, the MRI would be more detailed about the amount of injury, where it was, what structures are taken out, 
and also to maybe inter- to do brain surgery if they need to go in and clear out stuff with a hemorrhagic stroke, or to be able to tell maybe where the clot is if you're going to do something with like the Mercy Retriever, where they have this clot retriever that goes up through an artery in the leg, and then they 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 pull it out. And there's a bunch. That's probably another episode. But let's stick with TPA. Yeah, let's. So you do need that. the CT scan to kind of figure out whether it's a hemorrhagic or ischemic stroke. Yeah. Once they figure that out, then they have to just make the decision if they're going to use TPA or not. So they have to do their research and learn how long it's been since symptom onset. And my guess is they also want to know what types of medications somebody is on as well, if they can know that. Yeah, that's really important. There's certain drugs that will get in the way of them administering it. So if you are on blood thinners already, they don't want to administer it. If you've ever had a previous brain hemorrhage, or you tend to hemorrhage anyway, if you have very high blood pressure. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff that docs have to go through to determine. And so you need enough time. And remember, it's three hours. So let's say the person, I don't feel well. What's going on with you? I don't know. It's at 45 minutes before you call 911. Okay, 911 comes, and now you got to get to the hospital. Now we're talking about another 25, 30 minutes. Then the doctor has to see him. And like, there's a ton of things that have to be done. Uh, once they get to to the hospital, they have to be assessed by a doc. They have to be given the stroke scale, the NIHSS, to determine where they are in the stroke scale. They have to do labs, blood work. They have to call up the stroke team if there is a stroke team around. They have to get the CT scan, as you pointed out. And then they have to get the lab results back, and then they would have to do all that. So it's it's really hard. Now, one of the things that I find interesting is there are doctors who still talk about things like that's the way it's done, as if all the action happens in the hospital. But one of the reasons that we moved our lab from the Kessler Institute in New Jersey to University of Cincinnati is that University of Cincinnati had the world's first stroke team. And there's a lot now of stroke teams that have these really big ambulances that are specifically directed towards people with stroke. And inside the ambulance is a CT scanner. I'm pretty sure we don't have those in Buffalo. You need to get on that. Yeah, I'll do that maybe next year. We, we're going to start it now. Come on, Buffalo. Dude, dude, it's Buffalo. It's not you know rural Oklahoma where in order to get to the reservation, you've got to drive three hours. They have an excuse. But Buffalo, you're a big, important city. You need to do it. I'll talk crap about Buffalo since you can't, you live there. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for helping us out. Yeah. So that's the thing. And what's weird about these trucks that that have the CT scanners in is that they'll then tell a rehab in the neurologist and they can administer TPA on the way to the hospital. It's so cool. It is so cool. And it's so cool. All the labs in the truck, they can get everything done before they ever get to the hospital. Now that cuts what 45 minutes out of the whole process. And we're lucky here. If I have a stroke right now, my wife recognizes it. She calls 911. We have a stroke team. And I used to be on the, it's called the Cincinnati Northern Kentucky Stroke Team. I was in research and I didn't really save anybody's life, but I still got the, the lab jackets, this beautiful white lab jacket with this big emblem on it. Mm-hmm. I love it. But she would call that and pagers, they still use pagers for this, would go off for every neurologist on the stroke team. You also need, it's not just neurologists, you're also going to contact radiology as well as pharmacists. The hospital pharmacist, there's a certain mixture per body weight that you have to do. There's a bolus that set in first of TPA, and it's about 10% of the TPA. And then the other 90% happens over the next 
hour and a half that they administer it. So there's a lot that has to be done in order to get people to even qualify for TPA. Anything that we can do, Buffalo, I'm talking to you now, anything that we can do to shorten that time is going to save lives. So I think you should do it. And it would be really sad if it turns out Buffalo does have one and you don't even know it. Wouldn't it be? How could that be? And I don't even know about it. It's probably, you're probably right. And they probably don't have it, but they should. Maybe they're working on it right now. Well, after this podcast, we'll have shamed them into it. Yeah. And, you know, we need more of this kind of infrastructural. Heaven knows we pay through the nose for healthcare in this country. We should have the big trucks with the big CT scanners. Come on, America, you can do this. Exactly. And we're positioned. Our city is very close to Pennsylvania. So the the hospital that I was employed at, the Stroke Center, it's in the southern part. It's called the Southern Tier of New York State. It's close to the Southern Tier. And so they serve the Southern Tier of New York and the northern part of Pennsylvania. So there's very rural areas where it it serves people and the mobile team would help those people who are more farther in distance. Yeah, absolutely. We Ours is Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky. And so we take care of a tri-state area. Oh, fancy. We, like I do it. I jump, I got to go, Deb. I got to go get him in my new car and go yeah. save somebody's life. No, it's not going to be me. Yeah. So what else do we want to talk about with, excuse me, with regard to TPA? I had just a couple of things that I wanted to mention because being on the therapy side of things, the hospital developed a protocol for around mobilizing people who've had TPA. And so at the hospital that I was working at, they had a 24-hour rule. So we weren't getting people out of bed until 24 hours after they were administered the TPA. And sometimes I was asked to break that protocol. And of course, it made me nervous because I'm, I'm a rule follower. So I know sometimes we are asked to do things that we've been told we shouldn't do. And in those cases, if you're going to do it, I just like to recommend to people to just document that, that the physician per physician request or you know per medical team, patient okay to mobilize, bed to chair, just something very simple. But then I was wondering about that. And I did a little research to prepare for this recording. And there is research out there that shows that there's no serious harm that usually comes to people if they do mobilize soon after having TPA. And if something does go wrong, you know, you just put the person back to bed and they rest and nothing serious happens has happened from it. So I just thought it was interesting that the research shows that it's early mobility is okay following TPA. Facilities develop protocols to protect themselves and their patients and, you know, just to be mindful of a protocol. Hmm. So I'm a little confused and you're not confusing. I'm just easily confused. So early mobilization is generally considered getting them up within the first 24 hours after the event. Yeah. So would TPA accelerate that for rehab or? It, it depends on when they get the TPA. They just like people to rest for that 24 hours before getting up. But since they were starting to kind of break that protocol, we were doing nothing strenuous, just out of bed to the chair, really. So I would do kind of a little, just a more modified evaluation. Sometimes people do really well after TPA and they want to do more, but then we just encourage people to take it slow. We have to follow this protocol. And then if they're still doing well tomorrow, 
we'll see them tomorrow for full therapy. And then how long was it before they were discharged typically? I mean, obviously, if they have TPA and they're doing well, there's an overnight stay no matter what after a stroke. Would there be a second overnight stay, do you think, or maybe not? I think it it depends on the person, what their other vital signs look like, who the physician is, what the home situation is. But they sent a lot of people home after TPA. They didn't need a rehab stay. So that was good news. That is that amazing. That's crazy amazing. Mm -hmm. There is a book about TPA, and I I have communicated with one of the authors about it. It's like the history of TPA. It was written by an MD who passed away recently, who was the one who really pushed TPA. And for many, many years, doctors, and you still hear in doctors' voices this reluctance to use TPA because they're afraid people are going to bleed out. There's so much that doesn't make sense to me around those types of decisions and the way that our society is right now with suing people. Because if you don't have TPA, it's not going to end well. So if you're already in a situation where it's not going to end well, what is the risk? And I do think that some of it has to do with the way that we view the life cycle and our beliefs around living and dying. Really? How so, Deb? This is going to get deep quick. I can tell. Here we go. What do you got? Well, we don't get out of here alive. I mean, we do die. And, you know, I have seen a lot working in the critical care units. I have seen people come in with those MOLST forms, which what does MOLST stand for now that I mention it? What kind of form is that? How do you spell it? M-O-L-S-T. Together. Let's do it. One, two, three. Medical Medical orders for for life-sustaining treatment. MOLST. MOLST. So those are pretty specific and you can put exactly what you want on there. And I have seen family members and doctors walk all over those forms and keep people alive who don't want to be kept alive. And it's extending, oftentimes it's it's extending an unhealthy situation to begin with. And people, they don't want to live that way because it's not living. And, you know, just sometimes it's really hard to let people go. It's hard to watch people suffer. It's hard on caregivers. And I I don't, there's so much, um, what's the right way to say this? People don't know. If if you've never been around people who are very debilitated and who need a lot of care to total care, then it's hard to imagine the challenge on a person, on a caregiver for that until you start doing it. And everything changes that way. So, you know, because we don't know, we don't know how things are going to turn out. But if a person is having a stroke and they're already presenting poorly and TPA might make it better, then to me, it makes sense. Give the TPA. Was that awful? I think that was that was pretty well said. I know it's hard. You know, my mom died when I was 19. She went fast. And life without a parent is not it's not fun, you know? But I don't know. I don't want to I don't want to sound uncaring and casual about it because I it's I do care and it's not a casual conversation. No, it's deadly serious, no pun intended. Yeah, it's this whole um risk versus benefit thing that we're all juggling. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's what made the the story of my son's friend's dad so compelling was I was talking to his wife at the same time and and she was like they came to me and they said this is the risk 
this is the possible benefit. He may not do very well if he doesn't get it. And, you know, they were both young and she just said, do it, just do it. And it was the right decision. You need somebody in your corner to go do it. Whether Mm -hmm. that means, yes, administer TPA despite the risk or look, uh, unplug the machine because I'd like to go now. And we talked about that a little bit last episode with Terry Schiavo and- yeah, we were talking about hyperbaric. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's always like this whole risk benefit kind of thing. And it's it, these are tough calls. They are tough calls. They're hard decisions to make. And, you know, that's why when we're alive, we live. Yeah. Hey, at least we got that. We're yeah, here. This exactly. is our time. So you might as well do that podcast. You might as well do that podcast. And that's what we're doing. We asked people to donate to our Venmo account to help us keep this podcast up and running. One of the things that I would like people to know about us is, if they don't already know it, is that we're pretty passionate about neuroscience and our practices and sharing this valuable information with the world. And personally, I hope people are enjoying it. I think they are based on the number of downloads that we have although I still don't understand what all of those numbers mean. And one of the things we would like to do going forward is bring people more value through our interactions with them, this podcast, and you know, just, just making it easier for people to apply research-based concepts in their practices or their recoveries. So I think people might like to know that we're working on these things from the back end and Whether or not people donate, are able to donate, we appreciate them listening and sharing the podcast with others. What are your thoughts on that? That's true. Um, And we do have a Venmo account. Do you remember the address? I do. It's at Neurons. At Neurons. That's pretty simple. It is, and it's in our title. So if you want to help out, look, we do put a lot of work into this, and we want to keep it going. And, uh, you know, as Deb said, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Yes, we giggle a lot. And yes, we're having a ball doing it, but uh, we could use your support. The other thing is that a certain percentage, 20%, is going to go to the... The Brain Injury Association of America? That's it. And they help folks who have had a brain injury, family caregivers, and they also help medical professionals who do research and treatment. It sounds like a nice organization, and I'm glad that you told me about it. Yep. We want to support all people that have had brain injury. And we can do it through the podcast, but we also do it through a 20% donation of what we make if you donate at Neurons. Yeah. And we have goals for the future of this podcast. And one thing that we'd really like to do is be able to bring our listeners a little bit more. And the only way that we're going to be able to do that is if we have some funding behind us. That's true. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Thanks. I got some other interesting facts about TPA. You ready? Okay. Yeah. 
A study by the American Heart Association looked at data from over 300,000 ischemic stroke patients and TPA. Now, this was an older study, so maybe the numbers have gotten a little bit better. TPA among ischemic stroke survivors, so these are blocked, this is what qualify for TPA, was administered to 3.3% of patients. 2.2% of patients at regular hospitals got TPA, 67 at hospitals with primary stroke center certification. So it triples if you go to a hospital. So that, you know, when you're making your decision about what hospital do I want to go to? Well, if you think it's a stroke, you might want to go to the primary care thing. And usually that's the university hospital, but, you know, it may be different in every community. Um, survivors are three times more likely to get TPA if they are at a certified stroke center. I think I just said that. That's redundant. In 2019, the Journal of Stroke did a review of malpractice suits relating to treatment of stroke in hospitals. Almost 30% of the cases were failure to treat with TPA. What? Yeah. 30% of all the malpractice ones regarding stroke were failure to give TPA. You know who talked about this? Kathy Spencer. Mm. Remember she said she was semi-conscious and she remembers them discussing it and she wanted to scream out, yeah, I'll do it. And she couldn't. And Well, can you imagine being trapped in your body, understanding what's going on and not being able to verbalize your wishes. It would be it would be not great. Yeah. The average payout for pre-trial settlements. So this is if the TPA malpractice suit didn't go to trial was 1.8 million. The average payout for court verdicts was 10 million. You would think that that alone would be impetus to have everybody start to become a stroke center and also have a neurologist on staff that you can call 24-7 or have a couple of them on staff to say, can we get a thumbs up or thumbs down for this medication? 2020 article in the American Academy of Neurology Journal, overall about one quarter of eligible patients with a block stroke presenting within two hours of the stroke failed to receive TPA treatment. So one quarter of the eligible ones, and that was in 2020. The previous study was a little bit older. The article points out that women and minorities are undertreated with TPA because of course they are. Duh. Right. Speaking of women, another 2020 article in the Journal of the American Academy of Neurology found that compared to men, women were 30% less likely to get TPA. And a side note, women were also less likely to receive aggressive treatment when it comes to a heart attack as well. Really? Now, here's some weird science for you. So, you know, TPA is only used in ischemic stroke, but that's not always true. One of the things that happens in, in a hemorrhagic stroke is once that hemorrhagic stroke is stabilized, there's this big clot of blood that sits on the brain and they try to do what they can to, to get that out. But often it's multiple surgeries and there's a big uh, scar and you often see people with that had a hemorrhagic stroke with this ginormous scar across their head. They have used doses of TPA, and this is still very experimental, to break down that big clot that's sitting at the top. Now, they're stabilized from the stroke itself, so they're not going to bleed anymore, but the TPA is used to lyse, to break down the clot that's sitting between their skull and their brain and causing pressure. So, sometimes it is used in very specific ways for people that have hemorrhagic stroke. What about if you're over 80? Is TPA effective and safe if you're over 80? 
Yes. Patients that are older than 80 do better with TPA than without it. Go figure. And TPA is effective in survivors of advanced age, whether in large academic centers or in community hospitals. Do you think some of our rules around TPA are because people are just afraid and things that we don't know because we don't know everything. You know, this book that I read about TPA, it started out with various looking at how some animals would kill their victims by injecting them with some sort of venom, whether it was a spider or a snake or whatever it was. And they noticed that it would rapidly break down whatever was in its way. And they wondered if they could make this. And they based it this RTPA on naturally occurring TPA. And ever since then, there was this ginormous political fight about it. And doctors who were just very resistant to it. Yeah, I think it's fear, but it's got to be when you're going down 10 million plus dollars for a lawsuit because you didn't administer TPA, there's got to be something there that really scares doctors. And I'm, I haven't, it's impossible for me to get my head around, but your guess is as good as mine. Yeah, I don't really hang out with any doctors. I do sometimes, but um, yeah. They, the doctors that I hang out with or have hanged out with professionally are not afraid to give it, and they're very much behind it. But they're all at a major stroke and part of the stroke team, and they are neurologists, and they know what they're doing, so they're mm-hmm. not afraid of it. Yeah. Okay. Anything else about TPA? What about adverse effects? What do you got on adverse effects? of? I have this article here that it has the three different types of TPA. Well, all three, the most common is bleeding. But for alteplase, it says that effects include bruising, pulmonary edema, arterial embolism, DVT, um, orolingual angioedema, intracranial hemorrhage, shock, hypersensitivity, nausea and vomiting, seizures, ischemic stroke, thromboembolism, and sepsis. That's quite a bit, but that's they're very, very small numbers of effects. And when I hear something like sepsis, it makes it just makes me wonder if something else might be going on with that person, you know, where it just kind of happened um, concurrently with being given TPA. Um, yeah, so they're just some random things, very similar among the three different types: um, minor bleeding, fever, MI, allergic reaction. Yes. So that's again, that's why they do have to use their critical thinking skills and their clinical reasoning before deciding if they're going to give TPA to somebody. But you can also see how that list of all these adverse events that you suggest might freak out a doctor that isn't very experienced and why it is that the stats are so much different for stroke certified hospitals versus just community hospitals. Yeah. And you're right. If somebody has comorbidities, it sometimes it knocks them out of contention, but maybe something like sepsis was already brewing in them. But still, as you mentioned, it's a small percentage of people that this happens to. I would imagine that intracranial hemorrhage would be the primary one that they'd worry about, that you turn this ischemic stroke essentially into a hemorrhagic stroke. Yeah. I had a ball. Thank you. Thanks, Pete. I did too. Okay, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. 
Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.